If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the history of sex work in London, or more specifically, Southwark and Bankside in the Roman and Medieval periods. You might have found this podcast through the blog, Twitter, or my show on Netflix, but I know that I've met a few of you when I was first starting out as a historical romance author before the history side kind of took over. <laughs> Now, I want to mention this up front, because if you've read my books, this episode is going to give you a little bit of extra context about that area. As the name suggests, my series The Southwark Saga is set in Southwark, and many of the characters are sex workers. So, why did I pick it? Well, I couldn't have really said it anywhere else. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about sex work in Southwark, say that five times fast, and its surprising connection to some of London's oldest and most beautiful churches. Let's get started. The history of London's sex trade can be traced back to the first century AD when Londinium was a Roman outpost of about 2,000 people, about half of which were soldiers. Sex work flourished throughout the vast Roman Empire, and both men and women were employed to suit every desire in every location, from the streets and taverns to the bathhouses, and even, in the case of the bustuarii, in the cemeteries. Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry until the 2nd century, and despite the numerous camp followers who had come to Londinium with them, demand for sex workers was high. In the year 80 AD, a shipment of sex slaves arrived on the banks of the Thames. Taken from all corners of the Roman Empire, from Palestine and Africa to Italy and Gaul, they were chosen for their beauty and forced to staff the Lupinaria, which were 24-hour brothels where they would be unpaid, abused, and could expect to be worked to death by the age of 30. Oh, guys, that's a terrible situation. But as a side note, this is one of the many reasons I find current rants about the so-called ethnic purity of the early British so ridiculous. There is no one British race, and there never has been. London itself didn't start out as British. It was Roman, with soldiers and sex workers of many races and a good few different religions from every corner of the Roman Empire. The argument is stupid, but if you're listening to this, I probably don't have to tell you that. Anyway... As Londinium grew, other sex workers went into business for themselves under more favorable conditions. Southwark grew out of a stretch of marshland and began as it would go forward, as a hot spot of sexual vice and even public orgies. While it would later enjoy the liberty of the clink, inadvertently offering safe haven to every kind of criminal in its capacity as a bastard sanctuary, it's notable that as a Roman palmyrium, a no-man's land, it would be equally lawless. In Southwark, Asselli staffed the taverns. These were barmaids who were sex workers on the side, beginning a tradition that would endure for centuries and even be mentioned by Chaucer in the Canterbury Tales. 
prostibuli, or sex workers who work for themselves, operated among the gaming houses and cockpits. But outside of the city were the most enigmatic sex workers of all, the bustuarii, or women who worked and advertised in the cemeteries. The bustuarii, or women who haunt the tombs, worked out of graveyards catering to mourners and those with darker tastes. By the day, they themselves were professional mourners and were known to write their services and prices on the tombstones in chalk. They would meet their clients there again at night, sneaking into mausoleums or using the graves as beds. Also known as noctiluque, night moths, or something that shines in the dark, they were said to have a certain look. <laughs> known for pale skin and severe expressions, they themselves appeared to be dead. As it happens, that was part of the appeal. Some widowers sought them out, working out their grief through sex. Others paid the bustuarii extra to pretend to be dead. Dodgy kinks aside, working in cemeteries might have been as practical as it was fanciful. The women knew the cemeteries better than anyone and could entertain in any number of concealed locations. And, of course, they were guaranteed a steady stream of new clients. That's not to say that all sex workers were women. Men were also available for clients of any gender, particularly in the exercise yards or public bathhouses. In addition to being a place of worship, the Temple of Isis also served as a location for married women to meet their secret lovers or to pick a new one up to pass a dull evening. According to historian E.J. Burford, who we love, it was common for the sex workers to service people out in the open or under arches, known as fornicates. This is where the word fornication comes from, that being open-air sex under arches, which you have to admit is wonderfully specific. This became Vaken to German speakers, which of course became one of the most useful and gratifying words in the English language. Fucking. Forget your skylights or infinity pools. Arches are officially the sexiest architectural element, but this raises an important question. Is it technically fucking if there are no arches? Think about this the next time you're somewhere with lots of arches. You know, like a McDonald's or a church. And try to keep a straight face. I dare you. Now, despite the variety of sex workers available in Roman Londinium, there were some things that they had in common. Licensed sex workers were required to have regular checks for any sign of venereal disease, and they were prohibited from wearing certain clothes. They were not allowed to wear stolas, a more formal garment worn by Roman women, and the color purple was strictly off-limits because of its link with power, an association that would inform sumptuary laws for years to come. In theory, sex workers could be identified by the floral fabric or diaphanous silk of their togas, but there were some exceptions. Unlicensed sex workers wore what they chose, and the bustuarii, of course, well, they were known to wear black. Togas aside, sex workers in Roman Britain would look surprisingly familiar to the modern eye. Cosmetics were commonly used and fairly advanced throughout the Roman Empire, but they were particularly popular in Britain. Though they were used by women and men across the social spectrum, sex workers were known to use more. There would have been plenty to choose from, of course. The scale of the empire allowed minerals, dyes, and other ingredients to travel to places they had no chance of reaching before. While the Celts had bleached their hair with lye and had woad tattoos, the newcomers to the island brought products from Rome and beyond. 
Hair was lightened with lemon juice or soap made from goat fat and beechwood ash, dyed red with henna or made darker with St. John's wort or walnut husks. Excess hair was tweezed or scraped off and faces were painted with lead, chalk, rouge, orris root, woad, and lamp black. Face masks were used. Skin was exfoliated with pumice or other scrubs or softened with oil or milk. And perfume was popular for both men and women. Sex work flourished in Britain until the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. It continued to exist throughout the Anglo-Saxon period, even if it was obliged to take on a less public form. Specific documentation of this tends to be harder to find, but for a long time, the evidence was in plain sight. After all, Grope Cunt Lane was not just a clever name. E.J. Burford argues that this name was common as early as the 10th century, and like Maiden Lane and other colorful street names in later years, it continued to be used to indicate red light districts for centuries to come. By the mid-9th century, the Bishop of Winchester had established the nunnery of St. Mary Overy in Southwark, basically on top of the original Roman stews and not far from the site of the Temple to Isis. This was not a convent in the usual sense, but it became one of the biggest brothels in Greater London. Because this part of Southwark fell under the jurisdiction of the bishops of Winchester, the sex workers in that area became known as the Winchester Geese, a name that would stick for centuries. Bitten by a Winchester goose became a euphemism for contracting venereal disease, and goosebumps were the symptoms that came with it. Episode 10, in which Jess ruins arches, goosebumps, and white wine for you forever. Oh, I haven't mentioned the wine thing yet. We'll get there. When the nunnery of St. Mary Overy was replaced by Southwark Priory at the dawn of the 12th century, it was not built for the same purpose, but certainly with the same money. When Henry of Blois, the Bishop of Winchester, bought the property from Bermondsey Abbey between 1104 to 1109, he wanted a place to build a house for his London governmental duties, but he got far more than he bargained for. With the property came the right to license the Bankside brothels. This area became known as the Liberty of Winchester, or later, the Liberty of the Clink. As it fell under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Winchester rather than the County High Sheriff, normal rules didn't apply, and once again, it became a hotbed for illicit activity. There was no reason to outlaw the Bankside brothels. After all, they were raising money for the church. Though it had reigned as such for centuries, Southwark became London's official red-light district by the order of Henry II in 1161. His ordinances touching on the government of the stewholders in Southwark under the direction of the Bishop of Winchester gave control of all of the Southwark brothels to the ecclesiastical authorities, which would allow the church to draw untold sums of money from them through the sale of licenses for sex work. There were 18 licensed brothels in Bankside at the time, employing about a thousand sex workers altogether. The sale of licenses was so profitable that most of London's churches built during this period were largely financed by sex work. Yet another reason to think about arches in that context. Although the church officially condemned sex work and sexual promiscuity, they had no reservations about profiting from it. 
St. Augustine saw no difference between sex within marriage and sex with a sex worker. Both were equally sinful, which was something he seems to have appreciated firsthand. After all, this is the same guy who said, Give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Do as I say, not as I do, right? <laughs> anyway, Augustine appreciated the need for it, and he predicted that if sex work was banned, quote, capricious lusts would overthrow society. St. Thomas Aquinas compared sex work to a cesspool in the palace. Take away the cesspool and the palace becomes an unclean, evil-smelling place. In its capacity as a home for London's undesirables and the dirtier trades, Southwark already smelled pretty evil. It was the perfect place for a cesspool. Sex work was a necessary evil, and from the end of the 12th century onward, it was regulated on a large scale to maximize revenue for the church. If it was going to happen anyway, wouldn't it be better for the proceeds to benefit a worthy cause? Henry II's ordinance changed the way brothels operated in a few important ways. The new rules offered protection for the premises, but they took the management of the brothels from the female bods who had been running them since time immemorial and put them into the hands of licensed men. Unmarried women could no longer own them, and the only women who could were those who had inherited them from relatives or who were left one by a late husband. In theory, the ordinance protected the sex workers as well as their customers. One of the protections guaranteed was freedom from accusations of consorting with the devil, which was more important than it might sound. Sex work and witchcraft had been linked in public opinion since Edward the Elder condemned them in the 10th century, and in many places, they still were. Penitential literature from this time is riddled with references to sex magic employed by women for the manipulation of men. Or, you know, maybe people do stupid things when they're horny. But no, it's probably the devil. <laughs> sure, Jan. Sex workers did not have to be individually licensed, as in Roman times, and for a time, they did not have to wear any particular clothing to identify themselves. They could not be bound by bods or brothel keepers, either physically or financially, and to this end, protections were put in place to cap the amount of money they could borrow from their employers to prevent them from being imprisoned for debt or forced to work in perpetuity to pay off debts that would never go away. Brothels rented rooms but could not offer board. Like the provision to prevent debt accruing, this was put into place to protect the sex workers from being taken advantage of through inflated food prices. They also got days off. Brothels were closed on holy days to allow the employees to receive holy communion. In return for these protections, sex workers were ordered to conduct themselves in a respectable manner. These were not the poised courtesans of later years, but women and men who lived among brawlers, conmen, and thieves and had the manners to match. Sex workers were known to grope potential customers and throw rocks if rejected or cheated, and there was a good chance any customer who thought to flee without paying for services rendered would get a chamber pot thrown at their head. Under the new ordinance, any of these behaviors could result in imprisonment. As in Roman times, sex workers were inspected quarterly to ensure that they were there willingly and that none had any signs of venereal disease. Gonorrhea and burning sickness, which was probably chlamydia, were common or even inevitable. Anyone found to be infected was fined 20 shillings and forced to leave. Of course, it's worth noting that gonorrhea is asymptomatic in up to 80% of infected women, 
So the effectiveness of these exams would have been limited. This probably contributed to the gonorrhea epidemic that struck London back in 1160. By the 12th century, venereal disease was nothing new. A number of early medieval medical texts had tackled the subject in multiple languages. These leech books, as they were called by the Anglo-Saxons, contained recipes for women's diseases, as women, who were more likely to have outward symptoms, were thought to be the main ones spreading them. One book, the Saxon Leechdoms, included such classics as Leechdoms Against the Evil Blotch, Leechdoms for the Perilous Disease, Leechdoms Against Lust, and Leechdoms for the Fig Disease. What that is, is anybody's guess. Now, this text even included early recipes for menstrual regulators or abortifacients, which, as we covered in our first episode, had already been used effectively for thousands of years. When identified, the symptoms of gonorrhea were treated by washing the affected area with vinegar and water, animal piss, or even white wine. I told you the wine thing would come back. Now, this would not cure it or keep it from spreading, however, and gonorrhea was only one of the sexually transmitted infections people were at a risk of contracting. In his Compendium Medicine of 1190, physician Gilbert Anglicus described the symptoms of another infection that resembled leprosy. Though it is still unidentified, it might have been an early form of syphilis, the same disease that would change the laws regarding sex work yet again under Henry VIII and would lead to the development of modern condoms, which we covered in episode 4. Now, this wasn't something that only affected single people. Many involved in the sex trade were married themselves, as marriage was no real protection against trafficking, separation, or abandonment. Wives could be sold in wife sales when one tired of them or when the marriage had run its course, and many married women turned to sex work on the side of their own free will or were trafficked by their husbands. Under the ordinance, this was fine. It was totally chill to sell your wife. But the harshest punishment was reserved for sex workers who had pro bono lovers on the side. Any sex worker discovered to have a lover not paying for their services would be fined six shillings and eight pence, imprisoned for three weeks, and subjected to the humiliating punishment of the cucking stool, which was being tied to a chair and publicly immersed in filth. Naturally, the lover in question would not receive any punishment for their involvement. The rule seems to have been in place to maximize profits while cutting down on leisure activities. Another interesting rule is that for the last customer of the day, once the sex worker had accepted their money, they were obliged to stay together all night. Brothel keepers were prohibited from keeping boats, and the boatmen who worked on the Thames were not allowed to moor their boats on the south side of the river after dark. Once customers were in Southwark for the night, there was no leaving until morning. Burford suggests the reasoning for this is that political plotters or criminals were easier to monitor with reduced traffic on the river. Anyone needing to cross would have to go via London Bridge, and then they would be seen on the way. While the Bankside brothels thrived under Henry II's ordinance, Southwark's position as London's red light district was cemented a century later under Edward I. His view of sex work was far less tolerant than his predecessors. Blaming these women of evil life for attracting criminals, he forbade them from living within the city of London. 
Any sex worker found to be in violation of this rule could face 40 days in prison. This effectively forced them south of the river, where they would remain for centuries. Though the church officially condemned sex work, they were tolerant of those involved for the most part, and they believed that sex workers could be redeemed through marriage. People who married them were almost regarded as heroes in many instances, and the reformed sex workers could go on to leave relatively respectable lives. You know, unless their church-approved partner sold them too, but by all means, stick a band-aid on it. Despite the serious revenue brought in by the Bankside brothels, however, the church's tolerance only went so far. Though sex workers could receive Holy Communion, they were denied Christian burial if they died while active in the profession. The final resting place for many of them was the Crossbones Graveyard in Southwark, an unconsecrated burial ground that became a pauper cemetery in the 18th century. It was forced to close in 1853 because of overcrowding, and in recent excavations, archaeologists found the remains of more than 15,000 people, mainly women and very young children. Most of those buried in crossbones died of tuberculosis, smallpox, Paget's disease, osteoarthritis, and vitamin D deficiency. Today, there is a memorial there to the Winchester geese. Locals have created an unofficial shrine to them, dedicated to the memory of the outcast dead. We'll post pictures of that on our Instagram. In a roundabout kind of way, this week's episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by my series, The Southwark Saga, which follows the lives of sex workers, highwaymen, boxers, and thieves in 17th century London and Southwark. It's like the Regency, but there are fewer ballrooms and way more swearing. Uh, I'd also like to thank our beautiful patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. Thank you all so very much for your support. Seriously, you are superstars, and I love you all. If you would like to support the show, check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at dirtysexyhistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where, again, we will post any photos related to the show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast, and this episode was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale. My sources today include Catherine Arnold, The Sexual History of London, E.J. Burford, Bods and Lodgings, A History of the London Bankside Brothels, 100-1675, E.J. Burford, The Orrible Sin, a look at London lechery from Roman to Cromwellian times. Catullus, poem 59, Rufa Among the Graves. N.S. Gill, prostitution notes from the Satyricon of Petronius Arbiter. Juvenal, satires, book 22. Martial, epigrams, 1, 34.8 and 3, 93.15. Nicky Roberts, Whores in History, Prostitution in Western Society. That's it for us for this week. Thank you once again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>